Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. I'm here with Shauna Schultz. She is the co-founder and president of MassFX Media. I met her through uh, previous guest Ryan Evans, uh, actor and comedian who starred in the Denver 48-hour film project called Carrier, which won Best Actor, Best Actress, Audience Choice, Best Writing, Best Director, and Best Film. <laughs> and uh, with that, Shauna, welcome, and thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So tell me about Mass FX, because you had touched upon that a little bit. I'm, I'm fascinated about what that is in terms of the your, your skill set, your capabilities, and, and your clients. Sure, yeah. So we started Mass FX Media eight years ago. And we started it out of necessity because we were working at a publishing company doing weekly documentaries. So, and when I say we, I, I'm meaning me and Matt, so my husband. He, he and I would do, we were the production team for this product that produced weekly docs. And it was a conversation cafe where people would come to a live one-hour event and some sort of piece of media, a story we would tell, would kick off the conversation, and we would challenge people that way. Um, and so we had worked there for almost three years, and we got the opportunity to go on a four-month documentary project living on a ship that was going around the world. Wow. So they needed a crew of 10 people, and it, it was our, our friends from CU that actually got the opportunity, and so they were like, we want you on the crew. And we were like, we're going to be on the crew. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just the coolest opportunity, and we could not turn it down. But it was like, we have a full-time job, both of us, and are we willing to take the risk to leave a solid full-time job with benefits to go do this trip around the world was like, yep, <laughs> we're going to try it. So That's we started, the right answer. Yeah, so we thought, we're young. We don't own a house. We don't have any kids. Like, let's just, let's try this and see what happens. So uh, we decided to quit our job, and we started Mass Effects Media in order to um, basically have some clients before that project started. So we had about six months from when we ended our job we were doing another project with that same crew to kind of test out working together. And so we had six months that we needed to figure out how we would make enough money to get to the ship. Because it was like, by the time January runs or comes around, when January comes around for four months, we'd, they cover our room and board. So we don't need to make any money. And it was a pretty low stipend um, where it wasn't enough that we would be able to pay rent and stuff back home. So we had to just get rid of everything, store our stuff, not have a rental. Yeah. We ended up selling one of our cars just to get that expense and a place to store it and get a little extra money. And so we kind of rearranged our lives to do this for months. And while we were there, we made a lot of contacts, learned a ton, made huge, like really close relationships with this film crew. And so when we got back, we decided we would just keep going. And it was like, well, let's just keep going with Mass Effects and see what happens. And the clients started rolling in, and we started to find our niche of um, we love cinematography, we love production, we love documentaries. That's like, that's our storytelling is nonfiction. We love that. But we're really good at animation. We love visual effects, and so I can be a director and a producer for that. Matt can actually do the animation work. So as we built Mass Effects, we started to kind of go into this niche of motion design, anima animation, visual effects, and... The, our other production teams that knew us, we could kind of be that ally to them. But then the brands, we could do everything. We could shoot, we could edit, we could make it happen. So 
we just kind of organically grew. And now eight years later, we've got a team of six people full time. And uh, we're here in Denver, up in Rhino. And uh, we've just got it's right now all of our marketing is word of mouth, which is amazing <laughs> because you don't have to um, convince people to work with you. They're already coming to you going, I hear you're good. I hear you're easy to work with. Can you do this project? And it's like, yes, <laughs> instead of please hire us. I think we've grown to a point where we do need to start competing. We do need to start intentionally bringing in clients and competing with other production companies to get work to sustain the machine that we've built. Sure. But um, it's a really fun challenge now because I think we we've kept we keep settling into whatever the new phase of our business is. And now that we have a team, Matt and I can focus on the creativity, we can focus on our client relationships, and we can focus on traveling. And I just feel like we've come to a really nice place here in our eight-year run at Mass Effects Media where we're, we're ready to take this next step as we grow and build more of our client base and it's just, it feels good. I think we've done it really organically, which each little phase feels very natural. So yeah, so uh, Mass FX is, um, it's been nice because we can make it what we want to make it. We work on brands, we work on, um, we work on films with other filmmakers and commercials with other filmmakers. And then we work on personal projects and documentary projects that we want to produce and then other doc filmmakers will come to us and we can help them with data visualizations, title design, and animations for their films. Oh, wow. So it's like the perfect variety. <laughs> so what are some documentaries that uh, Mass FX has done? Yeah, one of the, probably the most known is Chasing Coral. We, okay. um, that was a film that went to Sundance in 2017 and it got bought by Netflix. So it's on Netflix right now, if you do want to see it. And I think it's popped up. I think I've seen the... The, the cover. Yeah, I yeah. bet so. And um, so it's all about how climate change is impacting our oceans, specifically coral, of what's going on as the ocean warms, um, what's actually happening under the water, and what would happen if coral were to go extinct. Um, so something was happening that scientists couldn't figure out starting in the 80s. They kept seeing this coral turn white, and they hmm. called it bleaching. And it was oh, like, yeah, why yeah. is coral bleaching? What, what's causing that? And ultimately, they figured out its temperature. They did a lot of tests in the lab, and they would make the water more acidic. They would do um, maybe put pollution into the water, but they would make it um, colder or hotter, and that was what made the coral bleach. And they started to discover that bleaching is actually... Um, coral is really fascinating because it's an animal, and which a lot of people don't know. They think maybe it's a plant. So it's an animal, and inside of its cells lives little tiny algae. And so the, the animal of coral has a relationship with this algae that lives inside of its cells, where the algae, um, during the day, takes in sunlight and creates energy that the coral can have, consume. Kind of, it's like its little food maker. And at night, the coral then has its uh, little stingers that captures things and, from the ocean. So it's this great symbiotic relationship that when the coral gets too warm, it thinks that maybe the algae is the problem. So it rejects the algae. So that's mm. what you're seeing is the algae is what gives coral its color and it rejects all the al algae, which also means it's kind of like kicking out its grocery store. Now it doesn't have an energy source during the day. Eventually bleached coral will die if it doesn't come down to a temperature where the algae can come back in. So that's what 
the film is tackling is for a few years we actually helped shoot on it which was really fun because <laughs> I was like will you guys go to Bermuda and scuba dive <laughs> yeah, yes we will <laughs> so we got to work with this amazing team of filmmakers um, and be a part of their production team and then in post uh, they wanted to help people understand this stuff about coral because it, it's a lot of scientific jargon and uh, we need to understand temperatures and how one degree Celsius is really a big deal. What does that actually mean? How can we compare it? So our team was tasked with um, getting a lot of this information and then figuring out ways to create animations to help visually explain it to the viewers. So throughout the story in Chasing Coral, we're out in the field with the scientists and the filmmakers, and then we kind of jump into these animations to help people understand the mm. technical side of the story. And um, they also ended up doing some time lapses because they wanted to capture coral bleaching and dying. And no one had ever captured it in the wild. No one actually knows how coral bleaches. No one's ever seen that. So their team was able to set up, like the film is actually about the process of trying to capture that, which is actually really difficult. I bet. <laughs> and so they ended up at the end, not to, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> they had to go out and manually take time lapses. So every day... They would pick these locations, scuba dive down to them, hold a camera, kind of set it in the sand, run for three minutes of footage, and do it all over again the next day so that they could create these time lapses of what's happening to coral as it bleaches and as it dies. And so our team, because of our visual effects background, we needed to line up those manual time lapses. So oh. coral is crazy because it's got all these branches coming out at you in 3D, and if you move the camera a little bit to the right, the parallax of the branches, or if you're too close or back, the, the branches don't line up anymore. So how do we morph <laughs> the branches so that we can do a time lapse so people can actually understand what's going on instead of the scene jumping around every day. As you go through each day, it would be too distracting to watch the coral dance around. So we were able to line that up using a, a compositor called Nuke and then process all of the time lapses. The other thing was then there's fish floating around all of this. So now you have all these blurs of fish. So we were able to, in post, take out the fish and kind of patch over with that three minutes, we kind of chose the frames that didn't have the fish in a very complicated digital way. <laughs> that way you could really see what's happening with the coral. So that was the work that we did on the film. Um, and so throughout the piece, you can see like our animations, our title design, and then the big reveal are those time lapses that they ended up showing to scientists at a big annual conference that scientists had no idea. They'd never seen this before. So it was also quite the honor to kind of be a part of this scientific discovery as well. So yeah, Chasing Coral was just an amazing project that we got connected with. And it had turned out that filmmaker Jeff Orlowski, the director, we had hired him back in college. We needed a shooter and he was working on Chasing Ice at the time. And which wasn't chasing ice yet. He was like, oh, I'm shooting this stuff. I'm trying to convince them to do a doc. And he showed us some of his work on the glacier time lapses. He's like, you should totally make a film about this. I feel like it could be successful. <laughs> <laughs> which that ended up going to Sundance as well. Um, so Chasing Coral is kind of this, in a way, the sequel to Chasing Ice. Um, but back in college, we had met that director. And um, so we had stayed connected ever since. So that's how we got connected into Chasing Coral and worked on that film. So it's, a, it's always who you know. They say that, but they're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cliches are cliches because they're true. Because they're true. <laughs> <laughs> so 
how does Netflix, how did that whole negotiation with Netflix, did they take me through getting on their radar and then selling the film? How did that all happen? That was definitely outside of our team. Since we just worked on production and post, that was something that the director and the producer did. So Netflix didn't hand you like a six-figure check. Yeah, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we were just basically a vendor. We were able to like team up with them as a vendor. Um, So that was all on their end. Oh, cool. But we got the day that we premiered at Sundance was when they got the Netflix deal. So after we watched the film at Sundance, it was just like this high I've never felt of going up and getting acknowledged and having our work on the screen at Sundance. And then we all kind of gathered together after the screening and Jeff and Larissa, who's the director and producer, announced that it got bought by Netflix. So now we're all at Sundance and now we're a Netflix film. So that means we get to go to the Netflix parties. So (laughs) it was a ton of fun to just like, (laughs) we were in a whole different world as filmmakers. Were there any... uh... Were you starstruck? Were there any celebrities that you bumped into at those parties? So many celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm terrible at names of celebrities and like I can recognize faces, but we have a friend who just, they, it, he can just nail everybody. I'm like, oh, that was, you know, that's Robert Redford. And there goes uh, who, uh, Elijah Wood. It was like, oh, hey, there's Elijah Wood. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> He's just standing right there. Look at that. Some people from the office. It was like, all kinds of actors and directors and amazing producers and editors and, and people from the industry were at these parties that it was crazy to rub shoulders with them. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I haven't bumped into hardly any celebrities, like even you know sports people here in Denver. And I have a theory about that, that you know, they talk about how people walk in and they, they own the room or they just, like, it, they're magnetized, right? And my pet theory, I haven't validated this, I don't know how I would do it, is that they're now in three dimensions, right? So we're used to seeing them on screens in two dimensions. And so when somebody walks in, I think it's the, the, um, the dissonance that in our brain that's like, wow. So it's kind of like in the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder <laughs> if that's the effect. It's that they're not any taller, not any better looking than anybody else in the room. But because they're familiar and now they're at once unfamiliar in three dimensions, I wonder if that's the effect. Yeah, I, I, that could be. I don't know. But then it's also in a way... We should make a documentary about that. We should. <laughs> <laughs> it's also in a way they're out of makeup. They're not worried about, you know, they're not putting on a show. Oh. So I feel like that's why I don't recognize them is because they look like everybody else. <laughs> I had, uh, we were at one brunch uh, at Sundance and... Um, I was standing there with a group of people, and I was like, that woman looks so familiar. I feel like I know her. And they were like, oh, that's Rashida Jones. I was like, oh, that's why. I've seen her on TV. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> well, I'm glad I didn't tell her, man, you look so familiar. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah, I, that was a good, that was a fun, fun trip was working on that film. Do you have a, a favorite documentary? I mean, one that you could watch over and over? Ooh, that's a good question. Maybe not a doc. A Chasing Coral, I'm biased because I helped make make that. Sure. But I do feel like that's a really good film. It's a fun adventure. It's a lot of good people in it. I've seen it a lot of times <laughs> in multiple different forms. Um, but as far as doc stuff, I feel like 
I feel like my big thing is like I don't like to watch anything twice. Like I love to, oh. if I'm going to take the time for a couple hours to invest in something, I want to see something new. That's not true for narrative films, though. I have a couple that I'll just watch at least once a year. <laughs> or tell me about any favorite films. <laughs> yeah, film my writer. favorite film of all time is Snatch. Um, yes, Guy I watched Ritchie. that a month ago. Yes, I, I <laughs> think I've seen that a million times. I love that film. Pikes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you like dogs. What? Dogs. <laughs> I just feel like everything is quotable. It's so enjoyable. The characters are crazy. And like the way they they all come together in the end and you see all their stories are kind of like flying past each other and interacting. I just love that film. <laughs> I watched that a month ago, and then two weeks ago I watched uh, Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels. Okay, I've heard you. whichever one you see first you like more. Because I saw Snatch first, and then I watched Lock, Stock, and I didn't like it as oh. much as I love Snatch. Yeah, I thought uh, Lock, Stock was more... It, it was busier. There's more interconnections. There's more characters fading in and out. And, um, yeah, I... I don't know. I saw Lockstock first, but I think I like Snatch better. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Theory denied. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, have, I'd honestly have to think about which one I saw first. I can't remember. But uh, like Vinnie Jones, that soccer player that's in it. Or oh, the, yeah. He, or is he rugby? I can't remember. Probably rugby because it's London. <laughs> <laughs> that scene where he's got the desert eagle and he's like, and yours says replicas. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the close of like, choo, 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 choo. I love things. I love when films do that. I think um, another latest, um, uh, the the Big Short, and yes. those filmmakers, and then now they've made Vice. Like the way that they 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 almost mock the way you make films. You know, they mock all of the all of the conventions of a film. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Like, they pull you out of it. If you've seen Vice, there's this moment that just, like, you, it's just so surprising and so early on in the film where they kind of tell a lie, and are like, and then this happened, and, it, you know, they're lying of the way it goes, and they're just, like, wrapping up the film, and you're like, wait, really? Wait, what? Is it really? And then they're like, just kidding, and they launch back into it. It's just, like, I love when filmmakers do that, and, and they do things, I feel like, it's interesting how much I love to make documentaries, but how much I love to watch narrative films mm. because you can do that. You can toy with conventions and because we put it on a screen and we can do anything we want, we can mess with your mind and do anything we can't do in real life. And I really love when filmmakers do that. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun. It is fun. I just flashed back to uh, just, you know, this is January coming out of the Christmas season, your Christmas story, which I've seen every Christmas season where, Ralphie's getting the soap in his mouth and he breaks the fourth wall. He just looks at the film or the camera and he's like, so it's so unique in that movie because the rest of it is just a narrative film. But that one moment, it's like, yeah, why not? Let's break the fourth wall. So it's, it always stuck out. I was like, that's just, it's just a little bit of flavor in there that was like so cool. For sure. So the film, um, I am fascinated with how in 48 hours you had to write, direct, film, edit, and release a film. So what was that process like? I'm fascinated by the, the inner workings. So take me through that. Okay, yeah, it's a really crazy process. Um, I think the, the most important thing is to have a really solid team that would be able to help you pull that off in that amount of time. 
Um, and so basically, the way the film 48-hour film project works is Friday night, you go to a meeting with all the other team leaders that are in Denver, which is our city, and they do it in, I think, 150-some cities around the world. So it's a global oh, wow. competition. Um, but So you, on Friday night at 6.30 p.m., you all meet together, and you get your three, you get your genre assignment. Okay. So you go and you pick, everybody lines up in a big line, and you pick out of a hat two genres. And you can choose between those two genres which one you want to do. But you're limited to that. That's the, the film genre you have to create. And then after everybody has their genre, they announce the three elements that you have to have in the piece. It's always a line of dialogue, a prop, and a character. Okay. And so once they've announced that, you're free to go. And so they, they do a couple other things, like they give you a, a permit for around Denver. That way people don't get arrested filming for the project. <laughs> but um, they, so once, once you've gotten those things, they release you out. Everybody goes running out to try and get to their teams. And for us, our process is to meet with all of our team on Friday night. So after we have all of those elements, um, I was the team leader, so I texted it back to our team who was waiting for me at our house and uh, let them know this is our genre, these are our props, so they could already get started kind of mulling over some different ideas and brainstorming. Um, and so for us, first thing you've got to do Friday night is you have to have a script done because Saturday you have to start shooting in the morning or you're just out of time. So um, they started brainstorming locations. And so by the time I got home to our house where our team was meeting, they were already kind of thinking through some different locations that we had. It was, of course, the house we were in. Could we use a car? Could we use, um, oh, someone had like a cabin. Someone had a, some property up in the mountains we could use if we wanted to shoot up there. Um, and then from there, I go through, we have our actors there, and we can talk about, you know, kind of interview our actors. In this case, we had worked with Deanna Amaker. i got to say her name right. Deanna Amaker. Amaker? Amaker. Amaker? I think that might be. Okay. <laughs> okay. In this case, we had worked with Deanna the year before, so we knew what she was capable of. She was kind of a comedy actress. She was in our musical, the competition prior to this year. And then we had Ryan, who joined us really last minute. Another team had a huge crew, tons of actors, and so I asked them. We had... I think five people signed up for our team, and I was like, we need more people. Do anybody from your team want to be on our team? Okay. Then the, our friend was like, oh, send out an email. And so Ryan replied to me and was like, what, what do I do to be considered? I was like, you're in. <laughs> we need more actors. We just had You're one. breathing. Yeah. We actually had three, but one dropped out Friday, or Thursday, an actor dropped out, and then Friday, our producer dropped out. So our team was down to um, just me as the director, uh, my husband, Matt, is the cinematographer. We had two writers that couldn't be, or we had two writers, one of which couldn't be on set. He was just going to come Friday to help us write. Two actors and then very limited locations. So um, we, the nice thing about that was we only had so much to work with. So our creativity, we kind of had a direction to go because we were limited. So in a way, the small crew and small set of actors was okay. <laughs> So what were the two genres that you picked out of the hat? Oh, yeah. So what was the other one? School school comedy or what's, what was the word for that? I think it was like 
school comedy, but there's a word for that. Like, what is... Um, like John Hughes type? Yeah, kind of like it needs to take place in a school... I don't think school comedy is the right word, but it was like, uh, like community. Okay. What would that be called? That's like a oh, like seri- the show community? school drama. I think okay. it was school drama. That's actually okay. what it was. Maybe that's what it was uh, in thriller. So the two genres that we got was uh, a school drama or a thriller suspense. So we reached out to one of our friends who's a teacher. And we were able to work out to get into a school, an elementary school, that they were willing to open up for us and let us shoot all day Saturday. Okay. So that was an option that we were like, okay, like, what do we do with two adults in an elementary school to, <laughs> to make a school drama? So we started down that path. And then suspense thriller, nobody on our team had worked on suspense thriller. So that was something we had Deanna and Ryan, who were both basically comedians. Like, they were, they do a lot of humor in their acting. And so that we felt a little bit limited that like the school drama side or the kind of that we could put comedy into that we could make that funny but it was two adults and so we didn't necessarily have access to any kids that would act and so we were brainstorming is it like an adult community college or something where they're at school but there's two of them we don't have a teacher how do we so that we felt limited by so we we started to dive into suspense thriller as our genre which our two um, writers were also like their specialty is comedy as well. So we were like, we want musical or comedy. (laughs) (laughs) And we didn't get either of those. So um, it was really fascinating because as we talked to the actors, we started talking with Deanna and Ryan of like, what other stuff have you done? And Ryan was talking about like, yeah, I'd be willing to do anything. Like, just put me anywhere. Give me any role. I'll I'll try it. And um, Deanna was like, well... I, I would love to be crazy. Like, you could give me kind of a psychotic role. Maybe I could be creepy. I'm open to that. And I was like, okay, you've got, <laughs> we have some permission for you to be the bad guy. And we thought with a male and a female, which one is our victim? If we're going to do suspense thriller, it might be more interesting that our female is the aggressor or, like, the bad guy in the film. And so that got us into thinking about how do we make her the bad guy and how do we put her in a position where he's obviously physically much stronger and bigger than she is. So how could she make him more vulnerable? And so that started talking about like, what if she poisoned him or somehow she could make him weak? Like, why would he be weak to her? So that was a fun conversation to start to explore. And I think she mentioned uh, that she's getting into rapping it was like, oh, because <laughs> our character had to be Ruben Star, Ruben or Ruby Star, uh, so male or female, and they were a poet. So I was like, well, maybe if you're a rapper, you know, that's the our poet is uh, a rapper. So um, as we as we started writing, we started these kind of elements and pieces started falling into place, and we geniusly thought, we don't have a location, so let's shoot in a car, which is so hard. <laughs> it was a terrible idea. Like, why did we do that? Because <laughs> not only uh, as far as like shooting in a car, it's extremely difficult to get really good angles. It's so hard to have the director, the cinematographer, a sound person in a car so that you can't see them and that right. you'd be able to operate all the, the gear properly to get good sound. And then lighting is a huge issue of like, how do we get lighting equipment in there? And we have this great uh, camera guy and editor who he's got really good gear. So he has like uh, battery powered lighting. So he was able to bring in a couple light bars that we were able to light Ryan in the back seat and we could kind of throw some 
Phil on Deanna in the front seat, and so that worked out really well. Um, but yeah, all the, all the challenges, uh, we, we just kind of like embrace them as, okay, this is our new boundary for how we're going to write this story. <laughs> but it was a terrible option, <laughs> like idea to shoot in a car. It made everything impossible. <laughs> Like, it'll be so easy, but then the continuity of a car driving is like, wait, we need somewhere that we'll have to be able to drive around slowly. We'll need to be able to cut between looking out the front window and out the side window. Sure. Where could we go that the car could be moving and it wouldn't feel like you're in two different places? And then in the story we came up with, they're driving in the city, and so you can't really do that in a city with a busy street, so it was, it was quite the challenge, <laughs> which turned into a huge like wild goose chase for locations on Saturday that went into Sunday. So that was when you talk about like giving up. Uh, Saturday night was the night that it was like, if we gave up, I guess, like what would happen? We wouldn't let anybody down. Like nobody's really expecting this. I guess we'd lose our entry fee, but I'm done. I don't want to do this. Because, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess going back to, so we had a, a small crew to begin with, and then everybody had to kind of drop out during the day. So by the end of the day, it was basically me, Matt, and our two actors. Our, so my cinematographer, me as the director, and then our two actors by the end of the day was all that was left. And so um, throughout the day, we kind of started losing all of our resources. And um, it rained, of course, like at 11 or something. So in the middle of the day, it started raining, which then was like we cut to the front with the, our bad guy, you know, Deanna in the front talking, and then we cut to Ryan, whose window is raining. <laughs> and I was like, well, this isn't going to work, so we got to wait that out. We had these locations that were out. We're driving in a car, so it was like we have a crew of seven people, and uh, people have to go to the bathroom. So I was like, well, we didn't think that through. <laughs> like, how, how are we going to – we'll have to go and, like, bribe a restaurant to go and, like, ask them if our people could come use their restroom without us buying things. <laughs> and so we started buying, like, single coffees. Two people would walk over to a coffee shop and, like, oh, hey, I'm just going to buy a quick drip coffee so a couple people could go to the bathroom. <laughs> All the challenges of that. Um, but, yeah, so Friday night we wrote the script until about 2 in the morning. So we finally, at like 2 a.m., we felt good about the script. And then I needed to go through, since we had lost our producer, I was now the producer as well. So I had to go through and break down the script, figure out where we were shooting, and then figure out Mm. a schedule for Saturday. And I had told the crew ahead of time, be ready to leave your house by 7.30 a.m. We're going to be on set by 8 a.m. At 5 in the morning, I'm going to give you a location. (laughs) So it was like, wake up early, shower, and be ready, everybody, because they didn't know where we were going to meet. So um, I, we finally figured we would start at the restaurant and kind of shoot in script order. So we would start at this bar restaurant in our story. Our um, main actor, Ryan, is leaving a bar. He's spent all night drinking, and he's needing to take a car share home. So we made up a fake Uber or Lyft, and we've called it Carrier, and um, the, he was calling his Carrier to get him a ride home. So that's basically where we start. So we found this restaurant, and it's closed during the day because it just serves lunch and dinner. So we thought, well, that'll be perfect. And in Google Maps, it was perfect. When we showed up, it was like, no trespassing, no parking, no anything. We will <laughs> sue you. We will tow you. Signs everywhere. So it was like, hmm, they've got cameras up. And so I thought, 
well, maybe someone's here. And so um, I guess it was kind of like a sous chef or the guy that gets ready and chops all the vegetables in the morning. He comes out and he's smoking. And so I approached him and said, we're a local film crew working on a film. I was wondering if we could have permission to be here to film. He was like, oh, I could call the owners, but they don't wake up till like 11 a.m. I was like, well, maybe you could give us permission. <laughs> he was like, well, I don't think so. I was like, sure, people do that all the time. <laughs> so I had him sign our location release, and um, after much like discussing, um, he ended up getting a hold of the owners, and they were okay with it. Because uh, I told them, we're actually just in the parking lot. We're not going to do anything to the restaurant, but we'll shoot the restaurant, so we want permission for that. And he was like, I don't know, that sounds cool. So... <laughs> We finally got permission for that, which felt hairy for a little bit. Um, and then we got our shooting done. We were way behind schedule. And um, our second location was going to be our driving. So once Deanna oh. picks Ryan up, now they're driving around, and she um, decides to drug him. And then we start to learn, like, why she has it out for this guy, whether or not she knows him or not. And so during all of that, they're just in the car, riding in the car. She's driving, he's riding, and they're having a conversation so we needed a place where we could just drive around. So we thought, um, we looked at all the events over at the Denver State, uh, not the stadium. Where does the rodeo go? What's that place called? Oh, the Stock Show com- Western yeah. Complex? Yeah, so we decided to do the Denver Western Complex. And we thought there's a bunch of kind of back roads and parking lots. Yeah. That would be perfect to just drive. There's a little loop there. We thought there's no events. Turns out there was an event, and (laughs) there was, like, no parking. They'd closed all the roads, and uh, we, of course, didn't plan properly to carpool, so we had seven cars, like, every single of the five crew members (laughs) and our two actors had a caravan of seven cars, and I couldn't, you know, call each one as we were like, this location isn't going to work. So we lost a bunch of people along the way, and um, basically we ended up going to a a little like industrial location behind our house in Broomfield. And it's just very, like, there's not a lot of businesses back there. It's, or I mean, there are a lot of businesses back there, but they're not like walk-in retail businesses. So on Saturday it was very quiet. So that was after probably two hours of just like everyone drive this caravan of seven cars driving around (laughs) Denver, changing our minds. We just met in an A&W and had lunch and like regrouped and, so now, like, half of our shooting day was over, and everything took place during the day. So once the sun was down, like, we were kind of racing the sun. So we got that shot, and it rained in the middle of that, so we took a prolonged bathroom break <laughs> where we just drove back to our house and hung out for a little bit while it rained. Then, you know, toweled down the car, and at that point, two crew members had to leave. So now we were down to just four of us. There were seven so now we're just down to five of us, so three crew members and two actors. And then um, uh, we had someone searching out our last location, which was an abandoned road. And we needed a place where, um, kind of leading up to the end of our suspense thriller, the idea is you don't know whether or not she's going to kill him. And so it's like the suspense is like she's just this crazy lady that's going to take him away and maybe end his life. So it was like she would be driving somewhere that's really remote. And so we picked out on Google Maps this really great remote location that we arrived to, and it was like a highway of cars. <laughs> they had built up houses within the last year, so it was like houses, and it's like, this is not going to work. Even if we get this angle, the sound of cars driving by will be in all of our audio, so we can't even cheat that. So at this point, it was like 
4.30, 5 o'clock, and there just wasn't enough sunlight to be able to sell that this was all in the same day. So by the time we found another location, drove there, got set up to shoot, we probably needed about two and a half to three hours to finish the rest of the oh, wow. film. And so it was like Saturday was shot. We had to either give up, change the script, or use Sunday, which you only have until 7.30 on Sunday to deliver your film. So like the editing time, we've shot half the film. So as a crew, everybody had left by <laughs> that point. So it was just me and Matt and our two actors. And um, so we, we were, I was like, okay, you, Matt, our cinematographer, would go with Ryan and Deanna and get some driving shots. Like, let's be artistic. Let's build the tension. We'll have this scary moment of, like, you don't know what she's going to do to him, and they're driving along. So it was like, just drive around and, like, get us to somewhere remote so that tomorrow we could start somewhere and shoot our, our remote scene where she pulls up and we don't know what's going to happen. And um, we kept calling it the, like, the... Um, drop a dead body road of like, <laughs> like where would I drop a dead body if I were going to find a remote location? <laughs> so that was like, our, we got to find the dead body location. And um, so they headed out and I went home. We have a one-year-old. And so my mom was watching my daughter during the day. And so I went home and I was just telling my mom of like, all our crew left us. Like tomorrow we don't have anybody but our actors who were super gung-ho and like all for it super encouraging and just like whatever you need we'll shoot tomorrow whatever you need and luckily our editor was like I got the footage I'll start editing tonight but I was just like in the dumps I was like I, it's over we can't do this I hate this I don't even like filmmaking <laughs> <laughs> and my mom it was like the perfect mom moment of like you've come this far you might as well finish like you're great you'll do good and <laughs> so I was like oh I don't know and so my mom totally encouraged me to like keep going because I was talking to our cinematographer, uh, Matt, who's also my husband. So he comes home and it was just like, uh, are, are we keep, we've got to finish. And it was like, I'll find a location. I was like, no, there's no location. Like, it's over. We can't do it. <laughs> so he found a location, a really good spot out by the airport, which we thought it's going to be the perfect location but we're going to have to deal with planes. And so I was like, let's just do it. Like, we'll wait every um, five minutes. Like, how often can a plane take off? <laughs> Which Sunday morning when we started shooting was like, why did we choose by the airport? <laughs> but still, so it was like, let's get a good night's sleep. Our editor's willing to work overnight because he couldn't edit. He couldn't come back to the project until noon on Sunday. So oh. we didn't even have an editor Sunday morning anyway. So I was like, you know what? This is going to work out. Let's Sunday morning, we'll finish shooting. We'll f we've got from noon until 7 to finish the rest of the film. And we'll just go for it. So we picked a location and we picked a time and said, me and Matt, the cinematographer, so director, cinematographer, two actors, we're going to meet on this drop a dead body road and uh you know 8 a.m let's get there and let's let's just finish this out so um I was gonna run sound and direct and um Matt was gonna be in charge of all the cinematography and uh Ryan and Deanna were just like let's do it like we're ready we're ready to get this done we're excited we love this film we love the story so uh we get out there and it's pouring rain so we all meet at 8 a.m so course from 8 a.m to 9 30 <laughs> We sat in the car talking about the script and how we were going to shoot it as it just rained and rained and rained. At what and time of year was this? What, what, what this month? was August. Okay. Yeah. So it was supposed to be hot and sunny. Of course, yeah. <laughs> And it hadn't rained for weeks, of course. <laughs> hmm. 
but yeah, so um, so then finally it stopped raining, and so we had a little window between 10 and noon, so we had two hours to get it all shot. And uh, the actors did an amazing job. Like, they, they had all their lines memorized. We talked about the blocking, and they just nailed it. And so most of it, I was running sound then while they were doing their final scenes. I just let them do their thing, and they just owned it and made it really good. So we finished shooting that. Um, we had one more shot to get. And it was basically the car coming onto a dirt road to get this setup that she's somewhere remote. They've been driving for a while now. She's entered a place that's this like remote dirt road. And uh, we get the car set up. They, they've gone driven to the end of the road. We're set up with the camera, me and the cinematographer. And all of a sudden, five cars led by a park ranger come down that road. And like we hadn't <laughs> seen anybody all morning. No one was driving on this road. All these cars come and they park where our other production vehicles were. And they just like surround our production vehicles. And it was like, uh, are we in trouble? Is it like, did someone call the cops on us? And people start getting out of their cars. They, they're like walking, they're looking at our vehicles. So we walked back to them. I was like, hey, how you doing? And um, they said, um, oh, hey, we're a search party. We've been searching for our friend for a couple months, and um, the park rangers have given us permission to search this place for her body. <laughs> and they were like, what are what? you doing? And we were like, nothing. <laughs> I was like, I wasn't going to tell them we're shooting a film about someone dumping a body in a remote location. <laughs> so that was like, it was a bit of a film delay because we had all their cars in our way, but it was oh, the most man. ironic thing that... Then Matt was like, well, we found the perfect location. <laughs> a place where people would suspect to dump a body. But uh, So that was just a really random, crazy coincidence, which we wished them the best, and we connected with them actually about helping them make a video for YouTube to help spread the word because okay. this person has been missing for a couple months. Um, and I guess the guy, her boyfriend, has been arrested because he, he was found guilty uh, in two other cases of killing women. So it was like, they're pretty sure she's gone. But that's not oh, all geez. important. But it was just like this crazy <clears throat> downer. Like, uh, we didn't want to tell them we're making a film <laughs> about that. But at the end of our film, the, the idea is that you don't know. You know, the, it, we leave it up to the viewer what happens. So Which is my favorite part of the movie. We spin the top. Yeah, <laughs> as we right. Say. <laughs> That's, that's what I, I loved about that. Well, anyway, keep going. Keep going. Anyway, I want to come back so, to yeah, so we finished <clears throat> shooting, uh, sent Ryan and Deanna off of just like, we felt really good about what we shot and their performances. And at that point, we headed back to the office to finish editing. And our editor had a really good cut of the first part of the movie by the time we had gotten back. So at that point, we now had about six hours, so from one to seven, to finish the film. So we had to edit it, do all the sound sweetening sound design sound effects and color correction and score so i'd lined up a composer who was waiting sunday morning for the final cut and um, he's amazing he's done work on um, world of warcraft he was one of the like three he'll have to clarify that but he was one of like the three composers that did all the music for that wow. and so it was amazing that he wanted to team up with us because he did an awesome job but he was waiting and waiting, and it was like, when am I going to get the cut? I have to leave by 5. And, of course, it's 3 o'clock, and then 3.30, and then 4 o'clock. We're still editing and trying to get oh, tell wow. the right story. 
So then at five, he said, we sent him a cut early on that's like, it's really rough, the timing's not right. So he was really clever and he sent us um, basically big chunks that gave a theme of each one of the sections that then we could cut and edit and like overlay and fade against each other. And then he sent some hits of like big orchestra hits or things like that that we could lay in where we wanted to. So it was just, it was very clever on his part to give us all the toolkit to, for us to actually like put together the score. So that was great. Cause then he had to leave at like five and <laughs> by the time we finished the film, he was already gone. He wasn't available to finish the score. So that was really great. Like just thinking of our team members of the, when you're working with super pros, they're able to think through all of that, the timing and give you the tools to really equip you to finish the film without having to be available during that time. So that was good. So we were down, it was like six o'clock. We now had an hour left. We split up. So it was me, Matt, our cinematographer, and then our editor. And the three of us um, split up sound. So I did the score, our editor finished the color correction, and then our cinematographer finished the sound design. So he went in and like some of the voices, you know, had like a, a, a tone or whatever to it. He cleaned all that up. So the three of us had three different <laughs> premiere projects open and then at like 6.45, we combined them, and we had until 7.30, and we knew it took us about eight minutes to drive there. So we're like, we're fine, we're doing really great. So we got oh, it all no. put together. <laughs> 7 p.m., we exported, and it was like, yeah, export's gonna take 30 minutes. It was like, what, <laughs> why? <laughs> so that, it turned out there was just a glitch. We were able to like render some things out, turn some layers off, or like pre-render some of our effects because we ended up putting that um, carrier sticker that was in post. We put that in on the car because we have a visual oh. effects company. So luckily, being that Mass Effects Media is a visual effects and animation house, we were able to handle that <laughs> internally, so we got that on. But So we got the render to down to like, or the export from Premiere down to like three minutes or something. So it was like the worst three minutes that we were waiting <laughs> We got it done. We're going to do the final watch through. It's like 7.05. We have to leave by 7.20 at the latest. And there's no audio. So it was like, what is going on? And because we had recombined it into a new Premiere project, there was this new glitch that you had to like solo one track and unsolo it. And then all the audio tracks would turn on. So that took forever to figure out. Finally, we got audio. So we exported that. And we got to turn on the music track. So it was like, duh! <laughs> So we do it again, and then we realized there was a glitch. There was like this visual pop where we had the way there was like a gap between a couple of clips. So then oh, we have to render again. So now like it's like seven eighteen, and we're still rendering the film and talking about. I was like, well, we it was a valiant effort, you guys. Like I guess we're not going to be able to enter. We're not going to qualify. And so finally, I was like, I'm going to go get the car running. I just don't want to know. I'm going to wait in the car. You guys come running out. I'm going to take off. So I get out in the car, and it's like running. I'm waiting and waiting. And so finally, I run back in. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> finally got it onto a jump drive. And you have to turn in two jump drives. We're like, we have to copy it. I was like, put it on a laptop. Like, let's just go. So we went driving, running a couple yellow lights, maybe pink lights, like a little bit pink, you know. <laughs> we got downtown, we pulled up to the bar and um, where you're supposed to drop off the film. 
And Patrick, our editor, and Matt, our cinematographer, go jumping out of the vehicle. I was like, I'll find somewhere to park. You guys go. (laughs) They go jumping out. 7.28 is what they wrote on our thing of when we got there. It's due at 7.30. And at 7.30, you're, you're, you're disqualified, basically. You can still show, but you don't you're not qualified for any of the other awards or the the major screening so the big like best of screening at the end so we made it at 728 which i was sure it was done so i was like the worst part is that i was going to give up saturday then we did all this work sunday and then we're not going to make it anyway i must i should have just given up on saturday <laughs> but we made it so it felt so good to finally make it and it was just like the relief of that and just the like well, now what do we do? <laughs> I guess it's Sunday and we'll just go home. <laughs> wow. So it was a wild ride. It's wow. like every year with the 48 or 24-hour film festivals, I'm like, I don't want to do this. Why do we do this? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's definitely a, a, a good learning experience. You're constantly challenged during it to try and po- problem solve. You have to figure out when you le- lose people, you lose crew members, you lose locations, it rains, whatever these issues are, it's like a really great challenge to to help your problem solving skills and your team skills of like working with a team, managing a team. So I think ultimately it's just really valuable to do and challenge yourself as a filmmaker. So I don't regret it, I guess. <laughs> and then winning wow. everything made it worth it. <laughs> and you were the first uh female director to win. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there's been 14 years that Denver's been doing the 48-hour film project, and this was the first year that a female director won, which I'm quite excited with that Congratulations. Thank you. Were there actual awards? Did you get a physical award? Just a a certificate. So they gave out certificates, Mm. and then there's like a couple little perks, like uh, free coffees and things that sponsors gave out, which was really nice. Um, but the nice thing about winning the festival is two of the awards were, um, one, you get to, your film gets to play at the Denver Film Fest, so you get to then go on and be automatically accepted into the Denver Film Fest, which was a huge honor and awesome. Um, and then the other one is you get to play at Filmapalooza, which is all the top films from all of the cities around the world go to Filmapalooza in Florida to Orlando. Well, actually... Filmapalooza every year moves around. So it's last year it was in Paris. The year before that it was in, I think, Seattle or maybe it was in Oregon. But um, so it's this the the global competition part of the 48-hour film project. All of the winning films from all of the cities get to come and compete again. So you don't have to make a new film. <laughs> Thank goodness. I was like, I'm not doing it if we have to make another one. <laughs> right. So you take that film and then it's a like five-day-long film festival where you get to meet all the winners from all the other cities around the world, and then you compete, and you can win best of the world. So once you get there, then you're having a whole other competition. But they do a lot of great stuff there. Like um, There's like a, a studio tour of, um, what's the Orlando studio? It's like Disney, but, oh, Universal Studios. Okay. So there's like a Universal Studios tour where you could go and, as a filmmaker, get to go and tour that. They do screenings of all the films you get to go to, tons of networking events, and like filmmaker training workshops. So it's a great way to meet people and kind of be celebrated in your accomplishment, which is going to be really fun. (laughs) And when is that? That's March. Okay. So second week of March. 
So I had a ton of notes and I have to calm down after hearing your story because to me, I'm seeing like the documentary of this and it's the, uh, the uh, I'm seeing the scene from every movie where people are hacking into computer systems where the security is coming around the corner and there's the progress bar. So I'm seeing that, you know, you, you compressing your film to get on the jump drive. It's just, I've seen it in a lot of movies. So I just, yeah, I could feel my heart rate and my biological reaction going up as you're telling that story. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like jumping around the room and Matt and Patrick were like, that's not helping. <laughs> I know, but I wish I could control this. <laughs> so how long was the movie, how, the final cut, how long did it actually end up being? It was a short film. Mm-hmm. Just under six minutes. So I think it was like 540. Okay. And do you recall how much raw footage you actually shot for six minutes? Mm, I'm not sure. Um, probably, probably about an hour of footage, I would say, between okay. all of our takes. All right. So not a ton, but definitely when you only have six hours to edit, it's a lot to go through. Yeah. And how long was the script? It was, um, it was right at six pages. So okay. we, we about nailed the length of the script to what the actual duration was. Oh, so is it like a page a minute? Is mm-hmm. it, Okay. Yeah. I've, I've had my hands on probably one script in my entire life. I don't even know why I knew that, but, um... And I had just a technical question. How do you track continuity? It's that's continuity is one of the hardest jobs. And like in Hollywood and like actual legit film crews, they have a person who that is their job. Like the script super, the script supervisor is the person that's constantly taking notes and seeing like if the coffee cup is in her right hand, and if it's like see-through, if you can see the coffee on top, if it's steaming, did she put the pen down, or did she keep holding the pen? All of those things, like that is a person's job when it comes to shooting an actual, like legit large crew feature film. So on our end, that was kind of my job, was to keep track of all of that, but we really leaned on our actors to remember that, where I would be asking them the question of, wait, were you, you know, were you leaning on your elbow or did you have your hand on your knee? And so they would have to think back or we would be able to watch back through, especially now that we have digital cameras, you can go back and preview what you've already shot to check continuity. But it's certainly something you have to keep top of mind. Otherwise, when you get into the edit bay, you're just like, there's, there can be such obvious, irritating continuity errors that people are pulled out of your film. So that's right. just nice to be able to, to think through how can we shoot a little extra B-roll or like an extra shot that we could cover in case we do mess that up. That way there's a moment that your brain, as you're watching the film, can get somewhere else and you don't need there to be that continuity between the two cuts. But that's definitely a challenge. <laughs> I think the, the, prop in this one was, the prop in this one was an overstuffed wallet. And so our oh, idea was right. like the wallet falls out when he comes, when Ryan comes out of the car and um, we, that falling out, we never really shot the wallet falling out. And it was like, where is the wallet? <laughs> <laughs> we just kind of like laid it on the ground. So in editing, we had to work that out of like, this doesn't work at all. <laughs> How did the wallet get on the ground? So we had to do a little bit of creative editing to establish that the wallet was there because it wasn't there in earlier shots. So it was like, well, maybe the wallet's really far away from him. So we like set it further out of a shot so that we could get away with that. I forget what I was watching. It was in the past week. And I was, when you're talking about continuity, I was trying to figure out what movie this was, but 
it was something that was so glaring. Like, I think it was like a scarf was on or off or something like that. And I just, and I, I try to unsee that stuff because you know, detail is not my strength. But as I learn more about films and things like that, like, I don't want to get pulled out of the disbelief, but I see that and it's just like, oh, yeah, it sucks you right out. It's hard to not, it's hard to turn that off too. Once you've made films or you've been around the behind the scenes to turn that off and you're like, Oh, there's a light stand in the shot, but anybody else might not notice it because it's black and in the background, but you see the clamp or something. You're like, Oh (laughs) yeah, that's how they lit it. (laughs) Or, Oh, and there's the mic or something. (laughs) The other thing that I hear and I've seen the or heard this somewhat frequently, and I wonder if there's a sound effect for somebody drinking a bottle of beer, and it the the sound sounds way too thin. Like I know it's water in there, so I don't know if it's a sound effect that they bought off the internet or if the actors are drinking water. But that's not what a beer sounds like because there's there's gravity to the the fluid, right? When they brew a beer. And I hear that, and it's just like, I don't want to hear this. Like, I wish I could not, I could get that out of my head, but it's like, oh, man, they're drinking water. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just want to suspend my disbelief, please. Um, the, the, the fundamental reason I wanted to talk about the film is that, and you had touched upon this, is the adaptability. And, um, you know, like the 80-20 rule and, um, I was talking about Parkinson's law. I don't know if you've heard about that. No. It's, it's, a, it's uh, I'll try to get this right. A task will expand to the time allocated for it. So when I heard, when Ryan was telling me about the 48-hour film project, it's like, that's all you've got. It's not, <clears throat> you could take six months to shoot this and still end up with six minutes of footage. You're up against hard deadlines. And so, you know, things are going to go wrong. And so, to hear you talk about the adaptability and the focus and decision-making up against a massive deadline was just fascinating to me. Yeah, I think, too, it it inspires me to think about our other work and our other personal projects because we we own Mass Effects Media, which we have clients to... Uh, we have clients that set the creative boundaries, they set their brand, and then we need to create something that fits within their creative world. We also have deadlines that they set. And so when it comes to personal projects and things that really like feed us as filmmakers and storytellers, we're always like, oh, we should make that film. Oh, well, there's no time to do it. And I think about what we accomplished in 48 hours, and why can't we just say, okay, we're going to schedule the next two weekends. We're going to write it that weekend so we're not spending the night, you know, all night killing ourselves. <laughs> but then the next weekend we're going to take two days and we're going to write the script and plan the shooting so that we can do it in two days. And we're just going to get it done. Then the editing, all right, let's do it in the next weekend and just schedule it and give ourselves the fake deadlines to get it done. Because I think of uh, other short films that I've worked on, I produced one just recently that um, it's about an 11-minute film, but it took probably two years to finish. We shot it in four days. It took about six months to get all prepped and auditions and all the details worked out and the crew worked out, shot it in four days. 
And then a year and a half later, it's like, we did the edit, you know, and, <laughs> and that, which is fine because there's a lot of other stuff going on in your life as when, uh, you know, filmmaking is a hobby. But that, this is my inspiration to continu- continually say, what can we do when we just set deadlines and we say we're going to do it? So I think it's also a good reminder of not only to practice our storytelling skills, but also the adaptability, like you said, of just get it done, like figure it out, change your mind. Don't get so stuck of like, oh, I want this artistic shot to look this way. It's like, well, what can we do to change the concept, still get the same idea, still get the same idea across, the same emotions, but change the way that we approach it because we don't have a blue bucket right now. We have a red bucket. Okay, we're going to use the red bucket or whatever the issue is. And so I think that doing this every year, doing the 48-hour film project every year is a good reminder of me of how much I love it and how much we're capable of in a short amount of time as long as you're willing to adapt and change. I love the film, yours in particular, because I had a personal connection with Ryan, but your film in particular and all the shorts that were at the Denver Film Festival that night, it was, with the exception of the really way out, like artistic one with the, the guy and his dad, which ended up sucking me in. But I loved those short films because it was all that was needed. And it was <clears throat> so fun to see that and so enjoyable because everything was in there was the bare essentials. And kind of the reason why I like, um, we were chatting about documentaries or something, a program like Sherlock on BBC where it's 90 minutes long and there's room to breathe. And so it's the opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're both so enjoyable to me because one has all the time and all the space needed to tell a story in just a, a creative, patient way. And then your film was just boom, boom, boom. And everything in it was just perfect. There was no fluff. It was quick and just a, they're both great experiences and it was fun to see that. Yeah. And I think it's good to have a time and a place for both of those of like short film festivals where you can go and just get a taste of all these filmmakers and get these short, quick stories and experience it where you don't need to invest 90 minutes or two hours into it. I definitely think there's a place for both. So how did, what was your journey to become uh, Mass Effects or a filmmaker? What was your interest? When did that all start? Yeah, my interest in filmmaking started when I was a kid. I My mom bought me a VHS camera for my 11th birthday. Wow. It was like a little VHSC, so they were the little miniature um, VHS tapes, and I... I just, I love to do in-camera editing. At that age, I didn't know how to digitize anything or mm. do nonlinear editing. So I would just, I would kind of write out little concepts and then I would act everything myself. And I have this really funny video I made when I was like 12 where um, I was telling, I always had Frederick the Squirrel in it. It was this little like beanie baby squirrel that <laughs> was named Frederick and he went on adventures and so I was, I, I think I was a reporter, I was also the farmer, and I was the voice of Frederick the Squirrel, and so I had to interview myself. So I would turn the camera to one side, and I'd put on overalls and my hat, and then I would say a line, and then I'd cut, and then I would rewind a little bit, because there was extra time between me reaching to cut, <laughs> and then like rewind a little bit, re-record over that to the farmer, or you know, the reporter asking a question, and then back to the farmer, and 
thinking about the amount of patience it took as a kid to do that, I just loved it enough that I was willing to go through that. And with my friends, I was always trying to get them roped into some sort of performance or film that I was making, a little video. Um, so I think I, I was just always intrigued by it in, as an elementary school kid and then as middle school. I loved storytelling, even though I was a terrible writer, and I still am. I, like, I need people to write stuff. I can edit it and help you know, change it. But uh, getting into high school, I actually met my future husband in high school. We were both drummers, so we were on the drum line together. And uh, he, he knew how to do a nonlinear editing, so he had an editing system. I think oh. he was working in Premiere or something <laughs> way back in the day. And uh, <laughs> we would go to his house, and it was like the thing of every single project for class was a video. It was like, oh, write a paper about, you know, the 1900s in America. I was like, could I make a video? Or, you know, we're talking about the Iliad, write a paper. It was like, could I make a video, please? <laughs> so everything was always making a video. And so me and Matt would team up and do projects together. And so um, I decided then that I wanted to go to film school. So for after I graduated, I went to CU Boulder Film School because I was way too afraid to go out of state. I was really shy. I'd never traveled. And it was like, oh, Boulder, that's really far from my house in Loveland. So <laughs> it'll be this great college experience, way an hour away from my childhood home. So um, in film school, I just like immediately knew I was in the right place. So freshman year, I'd taken all um, at CU Boulder. You have to do actual film. So your first production class is actually an 8 millimeter class. So you're actually shooting on film, you have to go get it processed, you have to literally cut to edit it together, and then you have to figure out how you want to do sound, because on 8mm you can't put the soundtrack on it, so oh. you'd have to edit that together. Playing your film on a projector, if you want to do any sound to it, you'd need to do that digitally, at least in this class of what we, we had at our fingertips for our tools. And so that process of learning to shoot and edit on actual film and then also the, the pain of the money that it cost. So it was $100 per roll by the time you bought the roll and processed it. And each roll of 8mm film was three minutes of screen time. Wow. So you had to think really clearly and really plan out what you wanted to do. You had to really understand f-stops and the speed of your film, so the ISO. And learning that and having that as a basis and then going into the digital world was just, I feel, a really valuable start to be an intentional filmmaker and only capture what you need to capture and make sure that you do it right the first time. Because <laughs> then as you get into digital, you can do whatever you want. You know, you could run for three hours, you've got all this footage and it's like, ah, store it on another hard drive. <laughs> so that, that was a really fun foundation. And my freshman year in college, I just knew I was on the right track. And I was able, I went to college with my, um, with Matt who then I married after college, but we met a couple other guys, Mark and Patrick, who we've been friends with ever since. And we kind of made this filmmaking group that then over the years that we were in college grew and grew. We have all these friends that after college, they went to school in Boulder and then we just kind of blew up across the country. We're all running production companies now and we're able to pass each other work and then also kind of team up on projects that we have a specialty because Matt's really great at um, cinematography, but also motion graphics. So we kind of got our niche in motion design. 
And so our friends, you know, they hire us, we hire them to do shooting or writing and all these other, um, we, we're just really able to team up really well. So I love the team making aspect of film. Like I love that you could make it by yourself, but it's going to be better if you have a group of experts that are good at what they do to create a one good solid final product. That's amazing. So I'm sure you've seen it. It's the uh, the South Park documentary about uh, their production. Oh yeah, <laughs> that blew me away. Like they, they is it what like a five day shooting schedule they have? Yeah, or six a week or something. Or like something. Yeah. yeah, it's just bonkers. But again, it's the same thing like the 48 hour project. You have five days, that's all you get. Yeah, and I I love those. It's kind of like putting boundaries on creativity makes you even more creative, because when you have no no boundaries. You can do anything. It's way too big. It's just like there's n- there's no challenge and there's no limits to what you can do, which means you you have almost nothing to grab onto. Right. And so you have to limit yourself somehow. I feel like as a creative, I have to limit myself somehow. And that's what pushes me and gives me the pressure to actually create something. Otherwise, you kind of just wallow in, oh, we can do anything. Here's my big grand idea. And <laughs> it'll just never get done. So, yeah, I feel like South Park is a great example of the importance of setting those limits. <laughs> that's why I think immortality would just be the ultimate curse and productivity killer. Because if you knew you had forever to do anything, I think uh, a human being granted that power would just probably sit on their ass. So where can people find um, where can people find you on the web for all your creative projects and partnerships and things like that? Oh yeah, most of our work right now is on MassEffectsMedia.com. Okay. Um, so there, our website, we've got our latest work up on that, and that's kind of where you can continue to track us and see what we've been working on. Excellent. Well, with that, Shauna Schultz, thank you so much for the time and uh, this. It's been everything I've expected and, and more. So this has just been great. So. Uh, thank you a ton. Yeah, thank you. Support local films. Come out, see the 48-hour film project. Support local creativity. So awesome. Thank you. Cool, thanks.